Hello everyone, it's July 27th, 2021. So at last, Naoka is in orbit. There seems to have been a few hiccups on the way. We'll get into as much detail as we can, and also the Arecibo Telescope, the next generation. That's right, it just might get a reboot. How cool would that be? Hopefully we'll find out. And liftoff! And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 318 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. And I'm Dennis. So I went and ordered a, a new car this week, which is like something that I've never done. I've never bought a car from a dealer. So when you say that you've ordered a car, I, th- I thought like... So you yeah, put like I ordered it from the factory. Okay, because I thought you meant like you did it online or something. Online, That's just yeah. yeah. No, so it's, um, it's the Ford Maverick, which is their new super tiny pickup. It's like the size, it's a little smaller than a Ranger. It's built on the C2 platform, which is shared by uh, the new Ford Focus. And I think the Explorer um, is, so it's, you know, it's a pretty flexible platform, but I mean, this is like a crossover sized pickup. The stand, it comes standard as a hybrid and the, the base trim level starts at $20,000, uh, which is insane for a hybrid. Uh, so I, I had to go buy it. Uh, yeah, Chris, Chris in the chat finally, uh, uh, came up with a good, uh, intro banter topic for us. Uh, no reentry fireworks for Tokyo 20, uh, 2021. They, I mean, they, that was Mm -hmm. so cool. And I think everybody was looking forward to that, but yeah, I don't believe they did it. Um, they did, uh, an orbital test at one point. Um, but I don't, I don't think they had the full payload, uh, cause I never saw any good, you know, photos of, of them reentering, but maybe it was, uh, maybe they deorbited them over the ocean to try to keep the chatter down <laughs> or not have to explain it. But yeah, I mean, Tokyo 2021 was such, uh, I mean, it, sorry, it was a shit show. Um, I didn't even see like, it. I still is. I mean, I had forgotten about it to be honest with you and then just found out this morning. Oh yeah. No, I've been, uh, like I love the Olympics. I don't give a shit about the Olympics between Olympicses. Um, but like it was supposed, you know, it's every four years, it's on even years. It was supposed to happen last year and mm-hmm. the pandemic got them to push it back a year. And this year, Japan didn't want to do it. Um, they said, you know, it, it's, it's dangerous and we don't have the proper pandemic controls in place. Like basically athletes and their support teams were not required to be vaccinated. And the vaccination rate is, is fairly low. I mean, it's above 70%, but I don't think it's over 80. And so there have already been multiple uh, athletes who have tested positive after their first competition. So like not just came into the country, went into quarantine, got symptoms were tested and came back positive, but like, Tested positive after being in, in competitions. So, um, Japan doesn't want to do it, but the, uh, the Olympic committee basically pulled out their contract and tapped it in a, in a legally, uh, threatening manner, um, <laughs> and made, made Japan go along with it. So like, I, I love the idea of like, uh, the NBA's, uh, bubble that they did where they played a bunch of games by forming a bubble and testing and, you know, doing all, and, and they did that before the vaccine was out. And, and that's really cool. But the Olympics, they, they can't form as tight a bubble because there are just so many people involved. There are people coming in from other countries. And then on top of it, they're not requiring vaccinations, even though they're available. And so it just, it's not good. There have been protests uh, by uh, Japanese citizens, and it, it shouldn't be happening this year. And if it 
is supposed to happen this year. It should be done better. And they're, they're not doing it. They're kind of, I think they're being too, uh, too motivated by money. Um, you know, they've paid all this money to, to get everything organized and yada, yada. And I think it just, it shouldn't have been done like this. And so it's really disappointing to me, but it, it, it could have been so cool to have, you know, an NBA bubble style Olympics, even with nobody in the, in the stadium. Like, I think it would be really cool to have everybody in the world be first person, uh, observers, you know, like the, we're always, uh, second person observers because we're watching through a TV screen and there are, you know, fans there in the stands who get to see it in a, in a much more real way. And it'd be really cool if everybody was on the same footing. Uh, you know, it's the athletes and their, and their coaches and their teams there and everybody else who isn't competing is watching in the same, in the same manner. Mm-hmm. And that could have been really cool. That could have been really unifying, but it, it didn't happen. I have not been following it very closely. So that was a good uh, summation, I guess, of everything that's been going on with the Olympics. Uh, so thanks for that. And I think maybe you've helped a lot of other listeners as well. Nauka is now in space. Um, they had a few hiccups. And we're going to talk about that, um, but not just not too much information or confirmed information on exactly what's been going on. Um, yeah. Would that be fair? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, lots of we know what has happened, but we don't know why, I guess. So um, just for reference, Nauka launched on the 21st. Um, and then also a good bit of information to um, go over before we start. There are three sets of engines on the module. Um, there's MDDK, which is planned to be used while it's docked to ISS. I believe this is like a reboost thruster, which is kind of crazy given that it's off axis. But, you know, so you're going to have to reorient the station to use it, but that's okay. You have to reorient the station anyway, <laughs> quite often. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's um, DPS, DTS. Um, those are the RCS thrusters. Um, and there's a good couple of clusters of those. And then there's DKS, which is the the main engines. Um, and, and there's a pair of them because you've got uh, docking ports on both ends uh, of Nauka. And so uh, this is a pair strapped on the side, very Kerbal Space. Um, and they, they point Zenith, I believe, when, when Nauka ends up being docked to the underside uh, of station. So I believe that the main engines will point at ISS and then MDDK will point away from ISS. So uh, there was like a successful launch and then very quickly we started getting reports of issues. Um, and in fact, I've got a link to the Wikipedia article. There, there's an entire uh, paragraph on the Wikipedia article just dedicated to the issues getting this thing to station. So the, the biggest, um, like juiciest report that I saw was on, uh, NASA space flight in a, in a comment on a thread that was the, the comment itself was removed. Um, and the author removed it themselves and they cited, uh, unconfirmable information. They kind of just, I think they wanted to just kind of back away from the situation, but. Right. So we had confirmation of a successful separation and then, um, the Kurz A antenna 
was um, not confirmed to have been deployed initially due to insufficient telemetry. Um, but then this, this really juicy comment uh, said that they also had issues with the horizon sensors and the main engine thrusters. So the, the DKS system, um, which uh, this post said that they generated failure messages during checkout and were subsequently inhibited for the rest of the orbit uh, until they could come back and, uh, and address them. Uh, more specifically, or, or, you know, address those issues specifically. Um, and, and while that comment was taken down or while that post was taken down, um, it seems very consistent with all the things that we've seen later on. So I'm, I'm quite happy to cite it. The only thing that isn't particularly well confirmed is that there was an issue with the horizon sensors. But, you know, if the main engine uh, thrusters are, are not firing, yeah, the horizon sensor is going to get bad information. And so the vehicle might not know which uh, which is which is at fault. So the the biggest uh, indication that we had that something was wrong was that they the the public uh, schedule for ISS, you know, is public. <laughs> and we saw them uh almost immediately go and delay the peers undocking uh, related activities. Uh, of course, peers uh, has to undock for Nauka to come in and, and use that same docking port. And uh, peers will be deorbited and burned up. So uh, unusually enough, it, this seems really weird, but I think it makes sense. Um, the peers undocking activities were delayed, but the OPM was not delayed. That's the optimal propulsion maneuver. Um, OPM is used to reorient station in a slow but efficient manner, right? I, I think it makes sense that they would not delay OPM because it's such a, a, a long, a long series of activities that, you know, you might as well just keep it on the books, reorient station, and maybe just keep station in, in an unusual orientation for a little longer than usual, um, mm -hmm. rather than delay it and have to reintegrate it with your schedule later on. Um, that that's totally my guess, but I think it seems reasonable. Um, this is a good moment to talk about the docking orientation. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen this particular orientation, uh, from station. Maybe you guys can, can enlighten me, but basically the idea is the long axis of station, um, gets pointed vertically with, uh, the U.S. uh, uh, segment pointed upwards and the cupola pointed aft, um, so that, um, uh, so that Nauka can approach from behind, which is generally the way that uh, you approach station, can approach from behind, and it immediately goes straight into its uh, docking port without having to do any of the more complicated station keeping that's required um, if you're approaching from below, like uh, like commercial vehicles do. D does that orientation sound familiar to you guys? I know that we've done um, the, me, but... the bottom of the station pointed forward, but I don't know if I've ever heard of the bottom of the station being pointed aft. Um, and pointed aft with the U.S. segment facing space. Yeah, well, so that's the part. So if you could explain, like, maybe I'm confused as to where, because I was thinking of the way that you're describing it with the cupola, wouldn't that, or the cupola, is that how you say it? Wouldn't no, that cupola. mean cupola. Cupola. The way that you're describing it, I thought that would mean that the U.S. segment would be facing down. It would be facing correct. the Earth. Yes, correct. This is not just mm -hmm. a 90 degree pitch up. It's a 90 degree pitch up and then a 180 degree Spinny roll. Spin. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, it's I've weird, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. weird. That is um, weird. I, I, I'm not confident to say that this is the first time this orientation's ever been used, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. 
Um, okay, so before we really saw any of the systems being fixed on MLM, the multi-purpose laboratory module. I think that's what MLM stands for. Uh, it's, a, it's another name for Nauka. Um, before we saw these issues getting fixed, um, the Russian news source N plus one, uh, published, uh, an article that said that according to a source that they had, judging by the telemetry information, too high of a pressure was created in the fuel system, um, as a result of which the bellows broke and fuel flowed into the gas cavity behind the bellows membrane. This is really bad, right? So, uh, MLM uses, uh, a, uh, hypergolic fuel in order to make that fuel always available to the, uh, the intake, in- intake valve, the, the intake port, uh, on one end of the, um, of the fuel tank instead of, um, you know, doing something like firing up their reaction thrusters to get the fuel to settle, um, which I don't believe would help. I think it, I think it might be an integrated uh, propellant system. Uh, what they do is they basically have all their fuel in a bag, and then they can inflate that bag to push the fuel uh, down towards the intake end of, of the uh, of the fuel tank. This is a pretty common setup, right? This isn't uh, mm-hmm. this this isn't novel. It's not in the bag, right? It, isn't it on like the other side of the bag, and then basically, you know, like you know, the bag where like the bladder expands, and then it forces the fuel to one end. Isn't that how it usually works? Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I think of it as like a balloon that inflates with air, um, but it is, it is more like a diaphragm. Um, right. That's, right. That's, that's yeah. That's probably a better way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, th- this is this is kind of crazy, right? If you have that that bellows membrane rip and you've got fuel just floating around inside there mm-hmm. that's that that's yeah. really bad like for a vehicle that you expect to be able to use for a long lifetime and to store fuel and to do reboosts it's this is not good uh however uh n plus one also said that their <laughs> their source indicated uh that the telemetry that they got could have been caused what the data they were looking at was also consistent with uh valve malfunctions caused by bad uplink telemetry um which could be bad could be easily fixable you know it's kind of like oh great so it's either really horrible or maybe horrible <laughs> in any event uh i i think it's pretty safe to say there wasn't a rupture and None of this was too terrible. First off, Ketling Gray on Twitter, who reports for, I don't know. Maybe she's just freelance, but, oh, I'm sorry. Her, uh, her Twitter handle is, is Ketling Gray, but her Twitter name, her screen name is Katya. So anyway, Katya Pavlovchenko. She said that she had a source that said that nothing was irreparable. We can fix all this. Great. Good. That's what I like to hear. Uh, and in fact, that does seem to be the case. Um, on July 22nd, the day after orbit, a successful burn, uh, raising the, the apogee, I believe not the perigee, just the apogee was, uh, was reported. Um, however, it wasn't made clear which engines did that burn. And later on, um, 
after spoiler alert, the DKS engines did do a confirmed burn. Um, looking at the, the different orbital characteristics, it looks like this was actually the, the RCS engines, um, being used just to make sure that we can get this thing into a safe orbit. Later on, the first DKS firing was reported by Anatoly Zak, uh, on July 23rd. So two days after launch, even though they had had a successful DKS firing, the piers undocking was pushed back uh, another day at that point. Um, right now, it's it's uh, planned for Monday. We're recording this on Sunday. It was the original pushback was for today, and then they pushed it back a second time to Monday. Um, and so uh, that that's still the the piers undocking time that we are seeing right now, as of you know, like an hour ago when I was researching this and. That makes sense. You don't just need DKS active to be able to dock with station. You also need, uh, KERS. And so the initial rumors were that the KERS antenna didn't deploy properly. Well, uh, we saw confirmation, uh, that it had been deployed, I think the day after launch. So it wasn't too bad, but, um, they wanted to do multiple on orbit tests, sort of checkouts of the system and, as far as I understand, they did two separate tests with KERS. The second one was uh, was on the 25th, so today, within the last 24 hours. Time zones make all of this so frustrating for me to research because <laughs> I I I do really poorly with time zones. Um, but uh, I believe this was today Eastern time, right? Like I I, I believe that this was a uh, a time zone adjusted uh, date from Twitter. Um, so that, that would have been sometime within the last 12 hours. Cause we're only 12 hours into, uh, into the 25th Eastern time. So yeah, uh, the second test uh, apparently has happened and we're good to go. Hopefully the uh, undocking of peers does happen tomorrow because that'll indicate a lot of confidence um, in not only the curse system, but, uh, MLM as a whole, right? We're, we're confident we're going to be able to get it there and we're going to be able to dock, uh, successfully. So, so that seems to be where we stand now. Now, there are a lot of, uh, rumors and speculation as to what caused all this. Um, as far as I can tell, it's not related to the metal shavings in the fuel tank. Um, I, I believe we talked about this on the show. I don't know, like a year or two ago, but basically they had to, um, replace a bunch of, uh, I believe it was just the fuel tank. I don't know if it was all the fuel lines also got replaced, but they had, had to replace a lot of mass in that fuel tank. Uh, the met, the fuel tank re- represents a lot of mass, but they, they had to replace the fuel tank because there were uh, metal shavings in it reportedly caused by poor manufacturing techniques. Even if those, uh, shavings got into the fuel lines and the fuel lines weren't replaced. It sounds like it's not an issue. It sounds like they were small enough, um, that they wouldn't have caused an issue with, uh, with the motor, the, the main engine. But I mean, it, this is all speculation. And, um, you know, even though it, somebody says, my source says, that doesn't mean that it's, you know, ground truth yet. Still got, still got a ways to go. So, I mean, that, that's where we're sitting right now. Hopefully in a, a few weeks or a month, we'll be able to come back and, and tell you more about what happened. Um, hopefully it won't take too long for that kind of news to, to filter down to schmucks like us. I can say that's very much, uh, on brand for Nauka to just, uh, yeah, <laughs> continue to run into issues and delays. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, very end. well, 
Well said. Um, and then, and then Dennis, you have found a new, uh, obsession with, uh, Ralph Vandenberg on Twitter, <laughs> huh? Yeah, I, I had not seen, uh, uh, their account before and it is amazing. Neither had I, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's incredible. Just these, these ground-based images of, uh, uh, Nauka is, is what I had noticed and got me interested. But, uh, uh, there's amazing ones of the ISS too. And based on comments, apparently he can image the, uh, X37B as well. He's yeah. done that at some point in the past. And so I think we just have to talk about Ralph's photography a little bit more because, mm. um, he's based out of Netherlands and he doesn't use any, uh, like electronic tracking. He does all of this tracking wow. by hand and, and does all this imaging by looking through his spotting scope with a crosshair and moving his telescope by hand. And that's cool. Yeah. That's impressive. <laughs> that that's hard to do. Yeah, it's <laughs> very cool. Yeah, he does it by hand, but I I imagine the setup on you know um his telescopes and cameras and all that you know have some pretty intricate or some pretty you know high end uh, gear ratios essentially so that he can. No, I'll bet make... you I'll bet you it's just a really smooth mount. I don't think he's using gears. I've I mean I haven't tried much, but I used to have a telescope when I was much younger, and I've tried tracking objects that are moving not even in orbit, which seems hard enough because that's going faster, but stuff that's further away, like planets. And, you know, just because of the Earth's rotation, it's hard to keep a lock on them. Mm -hmm. um, although those yeah. are much further away, and so maybe it's a higher magnification. I don't know. But just having to do that by hand seems all but impossible. <laughs> so, I mean, he just, he, he just might have just have the magic touch. Well, I, I've got a little, I've got something. Now, I don't know how it's done <laughs> mm -hmm. this well, but I do have something that I'm sure uh, you and uh, our listeners could Google if they want to learn more, is he does reference manually tracking using the quote-unquote crosshair method. Mm -hmm. And so there seems to be some kind of way where maybe you've got your finder scope and you've got some kind of way to basically, I don't know exactly how it's done, but yeah, he, could, he probably maybe has a, uh, uh, a you know, a, uh, a wider field of view uh, finder scope. Yes. And maybe if you can keep the object mm -hmm. in there, right, it's going to be moving across that field of view much slower if it's a wide field of view. And then so long as he focuses on that, then his much more sensitive 10-inch telescope, which, as you're saying, probably is wonderfully smooth tracking, he can get the two to basically, uh, just by focusing on the finer scope, he can get the other work. That's a guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, 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 you're absolutely right. So he says this is done... This is simply done by pointing a small secondary tracking scope at the object while a video module is taking images at the main scope. This easy satellite tracking method used by me and other astrophotographers has an advantage and a disadvantage. The advantage is that you can point your telescope at every unprepared moment at any object and start immediately capturing images without having to deal with software, etc. The disadvantage is mm. the efficiency of usable frames of this tracking technique is minimal. Therefore, most of my images of the ISS and smaller satellites are single frames. Only in a few occasions, mm -hmm. the number of usable frames is a bit higher, and there's still a limited number of frames available with the result that the gain in signal-to-noise ratio is only minimal. In less than favorable seeing conditions, I've experienced that it is not recommended to combine just a limited number of frames, for example, 10 frames, as the differences in the images due to air turbulence cannot be flattened out like in planetary imaging where hundreds or thousands of frames are used. So I believe this is all very... um very smooth mounting hinges or you know it might be a ball joint but it's probably individual hinges and i think he's moving it by hand um rather than having um b because the the fact that he says that he can track at any moment means that he's not setting his telescope up so that 
um, the axis that you know one of the rotational axes follows the mm-hmm. the path of of the mm-hmm. object tracking through the sky. I think he's tracking it in two, you know, X and Y by hand, just pushing the thing. It's like a video game. <laughs> yeah, right. So normally it's uh, David's job to to segue here, but I mean, I think we can go from looking at things in a telescope in your backyard to looking yeah. <laughs> at things through a telescope uh, in Puerto Rico. Right. Yeah. And rather than using our eyeballs to look at visible light, you can consider <laughs> some visible, but mostly radio. <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, so so this is pretty interesting. Um, the next generation Arecibo telescope is being considered. Um, and so this is more of a statement uh, that came out of an NSF held workshop. Um, but it's, it's so it's more of a statement than a blueprint. But this is something that, you know, uh, a lot of uh you know, different scientific communities have kind of come together um, because, you know, Arecibo, when it collapsed, you know, that was tragic in a lot of ways uh, with both, you know, human and scientific costs there. Um, but um, one way, though, that it was also very unfortunate is that it's not just uh, one type of, you know, it's not just that the astronomers had lost out as far as the science goes. You had uh, science, uh, you had planetary scientists, you have atmospheric scientists, and then you have the radio astronomers that look at more, you know, uh, outside the solar system objects. Uh, there had been meetings, apparently, on Zoom. Um, this must have been like the earliest adopters of Zoom before the collapse happened. <laughs> and, um, you know, they were basically considering what this next generation uh, telescope would be, because even if there wasn't the collapse, uh, it was kind of clear that, you know, Arecibo was not going to survive forever. And then, uh, you know, it unfortunately, you know, the the one, uh, right to remind you, the one kind of wire holding up uh, the, the central gimbal uh, had kind of broke. And then in short order, in short, uh, very quickly afterwards, you know, uh, within like a month or so, another one snapped. And I can't remember if a third had to snap, but essentially uh, things just fell apart very quickly. I think quickly. it was three strands in one of the two cables. What I guess one of the six cables. And uh, it, it, it was... Like, th- this is such amazing engineering because, like, Arecibo is like the Russian tank, uh, of telescopes. It, it's very coarse and, you know, real chunky. And so it doesn't matter if everything is perfectly aligned. You can still get really good observations out of it. And the, the penalty for that is that you've got a giant heavy instrument dangling from cables. Um, and so what I find so fascinating is the amount of energy that they put into designing cables that could last, uh, for a long time. And it still wasn't enough. So like these cables, um, had a corrosion resistant paint on top of them that they repainted and, and scrubbed and repainted, uh, on a regular basis. But did you guys know that they also could blow dehydrated air? What's it called? What do you, what do you call the thing that makes dry air? <laughs> Uh, a dehumidifier. Dehu- yeah, dehumidified air. Thank oh, dehumidified you. Dehumidified air. <laughs> so they they could actually blow dehumidified air. Um, James and Colin in the chat both say uh, they use dry nitrogen, but they could blow it in between the strands of the cables um, to blow out mm. all of the wet air to help limit corrosion. Um, but uh, apparently, it just wasn't enough. And like, it, it's crazy that they could really just baby these things, right? These are huge, huge cables and they got babied to the extreme and they still uh, just wore out over time and snapped. I don't know if the conclusion has been reached that 
that the issue was in the caps. So the way they anchored them was this really cool technique where you like unwrap the, like you fray the ends and you stick them into uh, uh, like a cup or a funnel and then you fill it um, with molten metal from the other side so that it forms this plug that, you know, doesn't fit back through that hole. And, but, but the problem is that it's hard to inspect that joint. Um, but I don't, I don't know if the conclusion has been reached that it was that one of those joints that failed or if it was the, the cables themselves. Um, it'll be interesting to, to see more. I think, um, but I'm already forgetting that some of those questions can't be answered by a very good video by Practical Engineering, which is a great YouTube channel. I watch all of his videos. And so the title is What Really Happened at the Arecibo Telescope. And I think he does talk about that. Like he talks, he focuses on the cables, how they're made and, you know, exactly what happened with them. Mm. But uh, yeah, just watch that. Um, that video like really helps answer some questions. And it, I think this is a video that also kind of explains exactly how the telescope works. You know, how like you can't move the telescope but instead you can actually move the receiver you don't get the best signal that you could but you get a pretty good one and you have the bonus of being able to move you know exactly like what you're looking at or to you know change what you're looking at within this guy yeah so you can just go ahead and steer with the receiver instead pretty neat innovation yeah i mean i i love grady's videos and i especially love when he's talking about plumbing and you know all these civil engineering he actually did a video on the um the oroville dam uh collapse which um you know I lived 20 minutes away at the time. Uh, I wasn't in danger, but I I actually did have to send a technician into that area uh, during the emergency. It was kind of fun. We (laughs) just called up our our folks at the um, at the California Highway Patrol and they're like, oh, yeah, no, no problem. We'll let the checkpoint know. We'll let them in. And I was like, oh, hey, cool. We have. Uh, we have a little bit of important power here. <laughs> it's kind of cool. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, I love when he's talking about poop and, uh, and sewage lines and things like that. But then when I saw that he did a video on Arecibo, like I did everything short of like turning out the lights and popping popcorn to enjoy <laughs> it. It was just <laughs> so good. Right, right, right. Okay. Okay. So all that, you know, we could go on about how cool Arecibo is forever and ever, but what are they thinking of doing? to replace it. Right. So, so it's, it's kind of a mixed bag, like I mentioned with these three different communities and, uh, it's not clear exactly, uh, what they're going to do going forward, but, um, at least kind of the discussion, you know, has started, you know what I mean? And so hopefully it'll be something good because Arecibo itself as an observatory is going to live on. Um, there are actually assets on site that are still functioning that, you know, don't get, don't get nearly as much, uh, attention. Uh, aside from the main dish. Uh, for example, there's a, a 12 meter antenna that was used for uh, VLBI or very long baseline interferometry. Uh, I thought this was interesting. Um, it, it sounds like basically, you know, when you want to go and hook up a worldwide network of radio telescopes, okay, the collection area isn't the big part. You know, how large are your dishes collecting radio light? It's a separation between them. And so rather than have this, you know, gigantic thing, you know, built into a sinkhole with this very massive, um, you know, uh, antenna and receiver, you know, uh, assembly kind of dangling on these, again, very <laughs> incredibly uh, strong uh, cables that were able to survive hurricanes and last for decades. But um, rather than use that as far the, 
as part of the VLBI, uh, why not just build a smaller, more manageable antenna? And so a 12 meter dish uh, apparently was designed uh, specifically for that. And so that was on site and that, you know, had survived, you know, the collapse, um, along with a pair of, uh, LIDAR, uh, right? La laser, um, radar essentially, right? Um, that's more used for atmospheric sensing. And so, um, as well as, uh, it sounds like some parts of the, um, the, uh, what's called the high frequency facility, uh, survived as well. All of these, you know, are still there and available and it's still a good site. It's radio quiet. It's a very equatorial U.S. territory. Um, it has that nice little sinkhole that, you know, the main dish was built in nice and snug as a bug. Um, and so it'll take about 50 million to clean up the debris, but with another 450 million, um, you could basically, you know, check off this wish list that the atmospheric scientists, planetary scientists, and radio astronomers would all be happy with. And so among the things they want, they want, <laughs> you know, this is again a wish list. Uh, this is a 500 times greater field of view. Uh, they want to be able to get more off zenith coverage. As you can imagine, it's a little yeah. uh, constrictive when you're, you know, stuck basically uh, within a small range of zenith overhead. Um, three times the bandwidth, the frequency ranges that you could cover, as well as um, four times the radio signal transmitting power. Uh, I remember on air, and I think it was Colin actually that helped me. Uh, we were looking at basically uh, the frequency uh, spectrum that's allocated, uh, you know, according to like uh, whatever that international group is that kind of cuts these things off. And we saw that there were some, I think it's like active mode radio or something like that. And we were wondering what that really meant. And Colin, in the ch using the chat right now, uh, had pointed out that, right, some uh, ground radio dishes uh, that are used for astronomy, including Arecibo, probably the biggest one for this, is uh, can go into active mode. And so you can bounce, you know, uh, your radio signal off of uh, asteroids, for example. And so that's a big thing that, you know, the uh, uh, planetary scientist community would, you know, definitely want, you know, next generation Arecibo to be able to continue doing. Um, and so all of this, and you could basically nearly double the sensitivity compared to the original legacy uh, antenna uh, would be, you know, I mean, bigger, better, or not necessarily bigger, but, you know, better than ever. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's an, it was an old dish. You know, it did an amazing job for as long as it did. Like you said, it was very resilient. Uh, but, you know, we could do something even bigger and better now. Uh, it, it, they have different ideas, you know, it, you know, a, a VLA style of seven smaller dishes is one of the things that had been proposed. And so, you know, rather than just having one giant dish fill up the entire sinkhole. And so uh, I agree with James Sutherland in the chat. We should rebuild it. $500 million is a bargain. Exactly. Uh, I think um, it was in the news uh, or not. Well, yeah, it was in the news recently um, without getting, you know, into too much detail. Right. Uh, when it comes to something like our defense budget, uh, apparently there was a 25 billion top off, like a little bonus that, you know, lawmakers kind of slipped in there. That's basically twice a NASA budget right there. You know what I mean? Hmm. And so for half a billion dollars, yeah. like let alone 25 billion or a fraction of 25 billion, how much more science and you know, that's all stuff that you could spend on space as well as just, you know, astronomy and planetary science. And like I said, atmospheric science, you could do some good climate change research uh, and had been done with uh, Arecibo, uh, the legacy telescope. Yeah. Certainly advocate more money towards that because that's uh, like people like to point out that's money that's being spent on Earth, you know, to help uh, the earthly terrestrial economy as well as being something that advances human knowledge, which is, you know, the main reason why we do this. But also some practical stuff, too, if Congress really wants us to go and identify all these, you know, potentially dangerous asteroids, then go and, you know, drop half a billion for Arecibo and help yeah. us, you know, be better at that. <laughs> I mean, it, it seems insane that we wouldn't build something there because, like, you already have a site that's prepared. You already have all the uh -huh. infrastructure figured out. Um, you have all these facilities. Like, why, why would you go um, steal more 
native uh, land, oh. right? Like that's a little bit of a jab at um, what's the the TMT thirty meter telescope? <laughs> yeah, is that uh, Haleakala? The is that the the mountain? I think that's on Mauna Kea. Oh, Mauna Kea. There you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and like you know, we already have this here. Why? Why would you not? Like it seems insane to me that you would not. So I I don't think that that's got that a ton it, of that, local expertise, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I don't think we're not going to do it. You know, at this point, it really comes down to what are we going to do? And I think it's really cool that you know a group of folks could um, jump in and uh, come up with. A, a white paper like this isn't you know blueprints but like can write a, a white paper just you know months after the thing collapsed and and a disadvantage that was noted about you know this one is that all right so uh the largest i believe this is still true the largest steerable telescope on the planet is the green bank radio telescope in west virginia right that's the one sure. i mean you look that up that one's an absolute beast i think it's a uh, hundred meters and the thing that's wild about it is though it's like kind of set up like a normal looking telescope so you can kind of just steer it around normally. Now, that had collapsed, I think, in the late 90s. And when that happened, you had powerful, you know, senators from West Virginia push and fight and get it rebuilt within a relatively short period of time. Puerto Rico doesn't have that type of representation. <laughs> didn't they cite that in their in their paper? Um, probably. I didn't have a chance to go through it. Uh, well, yeah, we will have the uh, the white paper in the notes. It's 85 pages, but it's very pretty. Got a lot of good pictures in there, and has a a, a high level executive summary that does a really good job. Um, but then you can go really deep into the details if you want. But um, I'm sure they probably do mention uh, mention that because that is a big part of this too, which is very unfortunate and not quite fair. But you know, if we could you know rebuild Green Bank because we we felt it was worth it, then Arecibo was certainly worth it, in my opinion. Yeah. So let's do three short and sweet. And Dennis, you got the first one. First up, Falcon Heavy gets a new customer. In light of the 2021 fiscal year spending bill passed by Congress, which gave NASA the flexibility to choose a commercial launch provider for its Europa Clipper mission, the agency has decided to fly the spacecraft on a Falcon Heavy. In previous years, the spending bill required the use of SLS for Europa Clipper. Congress made this allowance due to hardware compatibility issues with SLS during testing. Falcon Heavy was selected as an alternative launch provider as it meets the requirement of having flown a minimum of three times previously. However, due to its Delta V limitations compared to SLS, Europa Clipper will need to make gravity assist flybys of Mars and Earth and will arrive more than a year later than it would have with SLS. Then next up, China tests fairing recovery. The China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CASC, or CASC launched a Long March Changzhong 2C rocket on July 19th with a new fairing recovery system. Based on data from previous recovery attempts, these fairings had been equipped with an improved electrical system, as well as parachutes designed to open at high altitude and have been structurally reinforced. The Long March launch and deployment of its three Yaogan 30 and Tianqi 15 satellites were successful, but there is still no information on the results of the fairing recovery attempt. All right, and last up, Rocket Lab concluded its launch failure investigation. More than two months ago, an Electron rocket failed to reach orbit when its second stage Rutherford engine ignited, but then shut down seconds later. The root cause was traced back to the engine's igniter system, which had corrupted signals in the second stage's onboard computer. This in turn caused the thrust vector control system to deviate outside of normal parameters, and this failure mode, 
was only possible under a unique set of environmental pressures and conditions that had gone undetected. To correct this problem, engineers have created redundancies, in quotes, in the ignition system and have made design changes to prevent such failures in the future. So let's move on to this week in spaceflight history. And we got some winners. Um, as I suspected, mm. there would be quite a few. Um, I mean, this is not a record breaker, but still a um, good amount it's a here. Good, it's a good crew. Uh, we got uh, the Greek hot stuff, McTitlepots. Great name. Love that name. Um, <laughs> Joseph Marlin, Ben Howard, and Bill Boabob, or Baobab, or whatever, Boabab. These names are just so interesting. <laughs> I don't know how to say them. So your clue last week was Spain is beautiful this time of year, but we ain't going there today. So I kind of knew or had an idea of what, at least I guess you could say thematically, what this you know particular topic yeah. would be about. Turns out I was right. Uh, but why don't you elaborate on that, Dennis? <laughs> sure. Yeah. As I say, if you mentioned this, you know, if you think about Spain and 19... 19- 80s space travel you might mm-hmm. think of the shuttle and there's really kind of only one logical connection mm-hmm. you can make there <laughs> and so this is uh the 29th of july 1985 and it was the launch and abort of sts 51f okay so this was uh the shuttle challenger this was you know back when we had the uh very cumbersome naming patterns and so 51f this was uh, I, I'm not quite sure exactly what its real number was, but probably somewhere in the 20s or 30s. And so uh, it was uh, specifically a Space Lab 2 mission. Among other things, it was the first flight of the Igloo, which uh, if anyone is, uh, you know, ever gets a chance to go outside D.C. and see the Udvar, go to the Udvar Hazy uh, Space Museum, uh, you can see the Igloo there. And so what this was, was unlike Space Labs, uh, where you would you know, have this pressurized, you know, module and you can have your astronauts go and climb in there and do their science experiments. This was a series of uh, pallets that had different instruments uh, on board. And the igloo, which is this tall vertical cylinder, uh, basically was connected to the the, the frontmost pallet and uh, contained electronics and everything in there. And so uh, nobody actually climbed in there and did anything. Uh, it was all actually controlled from the aft flight deck. So where you typically, you know, you know, would control your, uh, the, the, the cannon arm, except it was not just in the, 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 the aft part. Uh, of the uh, the flight deck, but more like to the sides, so the aft port and the aft starboard. And they straight up, I don't know if they've done this on other missions, but they like integrated entirely new like, you know, computer screens and everything to be very specific to the uh, to the payloads in the back, which is pretty cool because it, it usually doesn't look like that. You don't have these big monitors in the uh, in the actual, you know, in the deck itself or among the controls. It was it was integrated into the panels themselves. So instead of just having a whole bunch of switches there that would typically be, you know, in panel, like, you know, whatever, instead you had a monitor and some, and, you know, basically a keyboard there. And so you'd Hmm. use that to control it. Yeah. Oh, cool. That's what I was reaching for. You can also call it the dashboard, but I don't think that would be the right right term. (laughs) Yeah. The the side rear dash, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) But I write the same idea. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and um, I love that uh, NASA igloo. That James just put in the chat. Uh, if you ever want to keep your uh, your uh, beverages or sandwiches cold, uh, NASA has an igloo that is more of a uh, you know it's a cooler, <laughs> but more of an insulated variety. An insulated variety. Yeah. And, and was this? I, I don't want to spoil anything. Wasn't this the mission where we flew a can of Coke? It was, and I was almost not even going to say anything about it just because okay. you, everyone you yaps need about to. It. You need to tie that into Igloo, please, please, please. Because just like James, that was the first thing I thought of when you were talking Ah. about Igloo experiment. (laughs) I was like, ooh, Igloo cooler. 
Coke. <laughs> right, right, right. And so, yeah, exactly. So that's the connection there is that the carbonated beverage container evaluation, this was not the dispenser that was like integrated into the mid rack, uh, the, yeah, the, uh, the mid deck racks, but rather this was, as I understand it, just a straight up Coke can, but with a modified dispenser so that maybe astronauts could have, you know, carbonated beverages on orbit. And, you know, at, right at some point the logic was we were going to be sending up more and more civilians on kind of more routine missions and so maybe we would want people to be able to uh, enjoy you know drinking a nice cold coke <laughs> uh, and then and then having uncontrollable or the inability to burp properly and just stomach pains for the rest of the day that sounds like a great idea good yeah, job right. <laughs> uh coca-cola corporation yeah as you can imagine it didn't quite pan out and so <laughs> yeah so that's that's so clearly if you get one of these uh cooler igloos oh pepsi went too thanks james so not just coke but pepsi same mission mm. i see uh nasa trying to be you know uh, a bit fair and balanced um yeah that's fair. That's good. Yeah, so you can uh, maybe just get uh, a Coke or a Pepsi can and uh, throw it in some ice in one of these uh, igloos that are on the ground here. Uh, a NASA igloo that's terrestrial-based. And so even though this was Space Lab 2, it actually flew after Space Lab 3 because there was a, a big delay with uh, one of the main instruments on board. This is not one of those uh, missions, shuttle missions. You know, I, I like to get really into the, uh, the, the details of the experiments. And so this will just be the last one I mentioned. But this was essentially... Um, uh, a whole series of uh, different types of telescopes uh, on, uh, all mounted on the same system called the IPS, the Instrument Pointing System. This was a, there were a lot of, uh, this was a full seven uh, crew members and uh, there were four scientists on there. There was a geophysicist uh, and then three astronomers pretty much, uh, two that specialized in solar uh, physics. And so this was a, just a bunch of uh, science folks on board. Uh, it was all a bunch of dudes. Uh, but um, yeah, and, and so uh, a lot of science was done as a proper, you know, space lab mission. Okay, so getting to the launch itself. This was something wild. It happened, as all launches do, in a matter of minutes, and yet so much happened, okay? So first, and I didn't realize this until after I had already selected the clue, this was another direction I could have gone. This was a double aborted mission, Right? It reached. It had a uh, an earlier uh, delay. It was supposed to launch uh, before June or before July, uh, but it had an RSLS or a redundant set launch sequencer abort on the pad. So this is right when right the main engines fire a good what six seconds before you light the SRBs and then you really get going. And so during that period of time, if there's something off nominal about the main engines, you go and shut down. You know, you, you abort your launch at the pad uh, before powered flight. You know, this was one of the, uh, you know, five or six times that this had happened in the shuttle's history. Uh, apparently, uh, Roy Bridges, the pilot, uh, uh, was uh, sitting next to uh, the commander, uh, uh, Gordon uh, Gordo Cooper, and uh, basically <laughs> throws his hand. He, he was thinking that, you know, uh, Gordo was going to bust his chops about this and say it was his fault because, you know, as the engines are powering up, you know, he noticed that one of them was lagging between the behind the other two, and then before he could even process that, that suddenly, you know, the whole thing is shut down. And so Bridges, the pilot, throws his hands up and says, Gordo, I didn't touch a thing. <laughs> and it turns out that it was more that the uh, the second uh, uh, main engine's coolant valve was slow in closing from 100% open down to 70%. So it'd be firing at the right thrust level for takeoff. And as a result, they had, you know, they board the launch. They get out of there. It's a whole big scary thing, right? Because you've got this, you know, fully fueled, ready to go uh, rocket and you got to get the crew out even after you've fired your engines, uh, your main engines for a period of time. 
So anyway, that had happened. Some period of time passes. Now they're ready to launch again. And this time, on the day they actually did launch, there was one hour delay due to some uh, software patch involving the SRBs. But there was good weather. Everything was looking nice and pleasant. I want to give you a couple names, all right? Back at the, uh, you know, uh, in the control center, you've got Brian Perry, who's the flight dynamics officer, okay? He's monitoring the, tra the trajectory of, you know, uh, the the spacecraft as it launches, while Bruce Hilty uh, is a person who's in charge of the uh, Abort Region Determinator, or the ARD, okay? And so this is basically, you know, what kind of gives you the idea of which of the abort modes would be the most appropriate for shuttle, okay? So Perry and Hilty are the two that are kind of most central to that part of the story. I'm sure there's other people involved, of course, right? This is a huge team that, you know, works on a shuttle launch. But those are the two names involved. And so the four, uh, what are called intact abort modes. So if you have your entire shuttle and you want to bring your entire shuttle home, you can do either RTLS, return to launch site, which uh, is kind of ridiculous. It's very dangerous. It involves mm. pitching the entire spacecraft 180 degrees, pretty much. And so it's yeah. terrifying. Um, then there's the TAL, which I always say in my head, transatlantic landing. And I've even seen it reported as that, but that's not what it means. The TAL, T-A-L, the TAL, is transoceanic abort landing. Oh, I thought it was transatlantic, too. Yeah, I can say. And that 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 gets uh, straight up printed like that. And so it's, it's a very common and very understandable thing because that's what it is, right? Sorry. It's, it's basically you're, you're too far, uh, to RTLS, uh, what's called, um, uh, negative return. You can't go back to the launch site, uh, but you're not able to get to orbit. And as a result, you're going to be, uh, trying to land somewhere in anywhere from, uh, Spain, depending on the inclination of your launch, uh, anywhere from Northern Spain, uh, to, uh, I think Nigeria, uh, of the main kind of locations, um, and Senegal are basically the lowest, uh, latitude ones closest to the equator. Yeah. Shuttle was just badass, right? <laughs> so yeah, tr transoceanic abort landing makes sense. Because they were thinking about being able to fly out of Vandenberg. And in that case, it wouldn't be transatlantic. Mm -hmm. It'd be trans-Pacific. Ah, good idea. But yeah, I didn't realize that. Yeah. You know, every time I, I read this, I always have to remind myself. Because, yeah, I definitely say transatlantic. T-A. Mm. Transatlantic. So I'm glad okay, I'm not yeah, the only makes, one. That makes total sense. Oh, cool. I had no idea. Thank you, Ben. Great. So I, so I know I'd certainly learned something new. So, yes, yeah, so that tran that towel... Um, right there, there never were any shuttle launches from Vandenberg, but they had considered it at one point. And so, uh, those are two of the four intact abort modes. Uh, and then there's the ones where you get orbital. There's AOA, which is abort once around. And that's where you get just enough to get into orbit, but then you're going to basically just coast around once and then come back and land at Edwards or, um, the, the Cape, you know, and, and basically there's a couple of different descent profiles, but that's not terribly terribly important right now. Um, and then there's the one where you just straight up make it to orbit, ATO, um, uh, abort to orbit. And that's the relevant one for uh, for this week in spaceflight history. And so in this case, you do make it to orbit, but for whatever reason, you probably didn't get as high as you wanted. And uh, even in their own documentation, they tell you that you probably wouldn't be able to con uh, to still be able to do your mission, uh, you know, uh, accomplish your mission. Okay, so now Perry, the flight dynamics officer, he's comparing the, the velocity the vehicle is getting compared to the ground guidance model, um, which is, you know, calculated totally independently. So you can see if there's any shortfall in speed, any deficit there. And then the other major and probably the biggest uh, uh, name to remember for this uh, event happening was is Jenny Howard. 
and she is the booster systems officer, and she in particular is monitoring the sensors on the main engines of the shuttle. Okay, so she's keeping an eye on the telemetry coming from there. And if you want to go and check out episode 269, where we did a wonderful downlink with Catherine Crow, Ben, you had done this, this week in spaceflight history for STS-93. And you talked a lot about these temperature sensors and how they're essentially a strip of metal. <laughs> that, you know, and, and the way that heats up affects the resistance of it. And from there, you can get an idea of the uh, temperature that's happening, uh, in this case, in the, in the turbo pumps. And so uh, go check out, again, episode 269 if you want to hear an awesome some this week uh, in spaceflight history about um, more of the details of the actual, uh, you know, engineering behind these sensors. And so I'm going to basically give, I guess, more of a hu the human story, <laughs> the, the history play-by-play -play of what had happened, because um, this one was very eventful, but SCS-93 was as well, right? So these temperature sensors, right, there's two on each engine of the three main engines, and at uh, T plus uh, three minutes and 31 seconds, one of the uh, high pressure fuel turbo pump temperature sensors, uh, what they call, you know, in shorthand when they're making their calls, uh, the fuel turbine temp uh, on any one fails, the, the main engine one fails, which is, you know, in the triangle of main engines, it's the one on top. Now, that's okay. That sensor can fail. The engine's still firing. It's still working. Now, at T plus five minutes and 43 seconds, so we're about two minutes later, the other temperature sensor fails, and that goes and turns off the first main engine, okay? Uh, when Gordo saw that, he, he called out the Houston, uh, we show the center engine thermal. That's how they basically called out that, you know, it basically exceeded the temperature limits, which is to say the voltage really, I guess, got, you know, exceeded, and as a result, they, you know, went and considered it, you know, out of, uh, what, you know, at an un an unsafe temperature, right? Because the reason why you want this to happen automatically via a computer is because you don't want your engine to explode, right? And a computer can react a lot faster than a human can by just monitoring the temperature, right? Because, you know, these astronauts are monitoring a lot of things while this is happening. Now, when this happens, the sensors on the other two engines are inhibited automatically, okay? So they're not going to go and shut down. They basically will continue to ignore, I don't know if ignore is the right word, but essentially, the ability for them to automatically shut down is stopped. So that way you don't, hmm. in case there's something anomalous happening with the electronics, right, or the sensors themselves, which, spoiler, turned out to essentially be the case, then you don't want to end up losing a second or a third engine unnecessarily because that is dangerous. Because these four orbit modes are successively less and less dangerous. RTLS, very dangerous. Tau, Transoceanic abort landing, also very dangerous. Orbit, uh, abort once around and ATO, you know, they get progressively safer. And so you really, really don't want to do those. And then these are, like I mentioned, just the intact ones. There's also the contingency ones where you think you're going to lose your orbiter and you just want to get the humans out alive. And those are very, very dangerous and involve all the different ways for the crew to try to escape, including mm -hmm. those weird poles that would come sticking out and they try to sneak out that way. And so um, nobody knows exactly how, how useful those would be, but you know, they want to come up with something, I suppose. That's pretty cool. Cause I, at first I was thinking about like when you said that once you have the one engine that's tripped, the other two like will ignore that signal. But the end, so I was thinking, well, that's not a good idea. But then I realized what are the chances of, you know, that happening on three engines? It's extremely slim. So probably it's just fine to go ahead and ignore, you know, those sensor readings um, mm -hmm. and just keep the engines burning because that actually would be much, much safer, you know, mm -hmm. than, you know, like shutting down all three engines because it just seems very improbable that you would have that exact same anomaly on three separate engines. So exactly. yeah, that's a good, uh, that's a very good yeah. design there. <laughs> Gives you a chance. So at this point, 
They've lost an engine, and in the flight deck, you've got, sitting in the captain's seat, you got Gordo Fullerton, uh, who had flown originally on STS-3. You've got uh, a pilot on their first flight, Bridges, Roy Bridges. And then uh, sitting between them, you can only fit four people up there, sitting in between them, Story Musgrave, and next to him, uh, Carl uh, Hennes. Or Hennes. I'm not quite sure the pronunciation of his name. And so you got those four up there. We, we are now 58 nautical miles in altitude and 275 nautical miles downrange. And so this is beyond that return to launch site, negative return. And you have only two options. You just lost an engine. With two engines, you could make it to orbit. So ATO is an option. Or you could do the TAL, and in this case, at this particular, this happened to be a higher inclination launch, um, you could try to go to uh, Europe, essentially, and land up there. One thing, though, that I never really considered, but if you were going to do a TAL, you need to account, right, This all this is at, in the second stage of powered flight after you lost the SRVs. You need to account for this giant external tank strapped to the belly of your orbiter. Oh, yeah. You don't want to start just dumping that over the Mediterranean, you know, uh, the, all the boats that are there or on the land, you know, north or south of the Mediterranean. And so that actually turned out to be the key issue here with whether or not to try the towel or to go and push for orbit. I mean, at this point, you know, uh, I'll just tell you where they were going to go would be Zaragoza, Spain which is kind of in north uh, eastern Spain. It's halfway between Madrid, which is right in the center of the country, and Barcelona, which is on the eastern coast, uh, if, if you're familiar with the country. And so that uh, that's kind of where the clue comes from. And and there was some dialogue between uh, Story and uh, Carl, Hanais, and uh, Hanais goes and asks, turns to him, and, you know, Story Musgrave was in charge of, you know, basically uh, monitoring, you know, where they would be going. And he asks, where are we going, Story? And Story responds, Spain, Carl. And then he hesitates a moment and says, eh, we're close, but not yet. And so he kind of had to back up on that a little bit. And so, yeah. So, I mean, at that point, they figured they might genuinely just be kind of doing the first ever and, you know, would have been the only trans-oceanic uh, abort landing, which I, I loved. I saw one commenter uh, point out that this would have been the uh, a world record fastest uh, transatlantic flight ever. Yeah, I was just thinking that, like, <laughs> in terrestrial terms, because, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, space, you're moving very fast, but on Earth, right. you're moving very, very fast, because <laughs> who does a transatlantic flight in that much time? Yeah. <laughs> a space shuttle, and that's You'd it. You yeah, have to put a little asterisk next to it, yeah. all these other people that are always competing for that. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was very funny. All right. So, but Perry and his team, they are considering, in particular, the the external tank, there's no safe way for them to dump it. And so they say we're going to, or, or at least at this point, they think it's better to go ATO. And so that's what they're going to do. So at this point, the uh, the call for press to ATO, which Ben had talked about on that other episode I had mentioned earlier um, about STS-93, you know, they're making the calls and it's basically, right, it's this dial in front of the uh, uh, the commander. And, and you know, they basically switch it to, you know, these different... Um, you know, those four abort modes that I talked about. Can I ask you a question about Tau real quick? I don't know if you know this off the top of your head. Um, I'm looking at the Wikipedia article trying to answer my own question. I can't quite figure it out. Um, I know that they had multiple um, Tau landing sites, um, including one in England, which is kind of crazy. But I know that they had multiple sites, but I thought that they were for different orbital inclinations. Did they actually pick different sites within the mission, depending on at what point they actually had to do that abort? Or would they 
only ever target one per mission. I see. I think, thank you for clarifying. They did target one per mission. And okay. so if I made it sound like story was going to choose where it went, it was more that story was in charge of telling them we're going to Spain and here's kind of the steps yeah. for us to do this oh, abort. Okay. Not, not necessarily the, the abort steps because he's sitting in the middle seat. So he wouldn't, right? Right. But, but yeah, but he is calling things out to the, to the, the people who are flying. Oh, okay. So, so he wasn't just looking at whether they were going to be able to prep for Tal. He was actually following the whole switch from Tal to AOA to ATO. And he, what it's the, it's the pilot who's clicking that dial, but he was helping mm -hmm. them keep track of where they were. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So, yeah. So, so Gordo's going to, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he then pushes the button. We're going to, we're going to, uh, ATO. But, and at this point, uh, a towel wasn't out of the question. And so story though was kind of his responsibility was to basically, you know, cause, cause there's a checklist for everything. You know what I mean? And so he was going to be the one who would have the checklist in his lap. I mean, he had, he had actually opened it, I guess, to the page or whatever for the towel at that point. Uh, although the person who would be doing it would be the, you know, the pilots, you know, and then the, uh, you know, the calls would actually be coming from mission control. Now, one fun fact, and I don't know if I read this somewhere or if I just noticed it by comparing cockpits, but the, um, the dial that selects the abort mode was changed between the, uh, the original cockpit as well as the glass cockpits. And so, uh, the positioning of where ATO is, is furthest to the right. If you look at the old ones, and it's uh, a little closer to uh, default, like, you know, um, in the in the newer, or I guess abort mode off in the uh, glass, the newer glass cockpits. And so just a small little bit if you ever go and... Uh... Oh, yeah. So, uh, and so James in the chat is asking, what about orbit once around? So it turns out, <laughs> this is really getting in the weeds, but I think that's part of the fun of these, <laughs> is that if you look at the original old school cockpits, uh, orbit once around had the same... Uh, it was at the same switch as uh, as a towel, actually. And uh, if you look, uh, you see it says uh, AOA-S, where that S stands for shallow, which is uh, there were those two uh, 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 modes for doing an, or an abort once around. You could do a steep uh, entry or a shallow entry. And ironically, I would think, you know, okay, well, steep sounds more dangerous than shallow, but it's the other way around because you, you're going through more, you know, aerodynamically variable uh, flight when mm -hmm. you're doing a shallow entry. And as a result, the steep was actually the better one or the safer one to do. And you can also see that off is all the way to the left in the old ones. So he had to, you know, when they have to, you know, press to ATO or whatever, he had to swivel that dial all the way over to uh, the right. Uh, but in the newer uh, ones, which you can see in the amazing uh, Gigapan, the, the super-duper high-resolution image that they have of Discovery's cockpit, uh, you can see that um, off is now in one of the middle dial selections, um, and AOA, uh, abort once around, is no longer there. I'm guessing it's still with ATO, or with TAL. I'm not entirely sure. And uh, But anyway, uh, it's just easier to abort to orbit, I guess, in the newer cockpits. You don't have to turn your dial quite so much. So the old order was off RTLS, TAL, slash AOAS, and then ATO. But they swapped TAL and ATO. So it'd go RTLS, ATO, TAL. Is that right? They swapped ATO and TAL, and they swapped RTLS and off. Because off is no longer at the far left. Okay, so you start in off, and then you click left to RTLS, then you click mm -hmm. off, and then ATO, or off, 
ATO Tau, and then you're in Tau, and then you have to go back to ATO. Why I would guess. it? Why would it not be in chronological order? That seems worse. <laughs> I don't get that either. <laughs> I don't know. Colin does have maybe one, maybe that's an idea. Is that the the one thing about the revamp? And you're right. The revamp would be more clicks overall, but at least hard all the way to the left yeah. or yeah. hard all the way to the right are the two most dangerous ones. And so that's easy, idea, Colin. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's easier to do. Easy to do. Yeah, in a off nominal situation. That's better speculation than I have. So at this point, the pot, uh, the commander's already you know push the execute button for ATO. And as part of the procedure, uh, 4,400 pounds of the Ohm's fuel is dumped. And so this is, uh, what, MMH and uh, uh, nitrogen tetroxide. You know, by getting dumped, they're burning it. But the thrust that you get from that isn't much. It's really mostly about just getting rid of that weight and having your remaining uh, main engines get you to orbit. So you want to just lose that weight. It turns out that we're now, you know, go another, I don't know, minute or so forward. And you're at T plus seven minutes. And at this point, uh, a single engine towel was still possible. Okay. So they could have gotten, you know, done their transoceanic abort landing if possible with just one engine left. Uh, they need two engines to make it to orbit and for ATO to succeed. Okay. So they're monitoring what's going on on the ground and the ME2, uh, the main engines two and three sensors have been re-enabled between now and then. And so this is to make sure that, you know, they can get there on a single engine. Um, they really want to make sure that engines two and three, you know, what's their story? They want to get the telemetry from them. That's fine until you get to this window. And it's not, there's a lot of time and different sources report on the time differently, but it seems like there's maybe half a minute, a little more than half a minute, where you've gotten to where you technically could do your towel landing, but you couldn't dump the external tank safely. You would be dropping it on the, you know, the Greeks or somebody, you know? <laughs> probably not the Greeks, the Portuguese. Or you can try to abort to orbit, but at that point, though, you're going to need two engines. They're in this dangerous situation here, and it's at that point, or within that window, that a sensor on the third, another temp sensor on the third main engine fails. So now you've got a situation here. So again, Jenny Howard is in charge of monitoring these. She's seeing that the telemetry on engines two and three, they otherwise look good, but she's now lost three of her six sensors. So she makes the call, which is a really big call, to ask flight to re-inhibit the sensors, uh, the temperature sensors on engines two and three. Which again, if those turbo pumps built up, you know, got too hot, you could have an explosion and that could be, you know, game over, worst case scenario. But she made that call because she was confident that it was a sensor issue and not an issue with the engines themselves. And so what's interesting is I, you can read a lot about, you know, the, the report, like people like, you know, reporting on this saying, you know, that she called flight limits to inhibit, right? But if you listen to the audio, uh, seconds after that, someone asks Fido, are we past Tal? And they respond, yes, we are. Jenny Howard goes and replies, you know, or replies to both of them, essentially saying, we'll keep a good close eye on it uh, in terms of monitoring those engines and making sure that they're okay. And so it was a big deal, but she turned out to be right. Uh, the engines uh, uh, flew for the remaining time until T plus nine minutes, 42 seconds, and Miko was achieved. And so as a result, uh, and thanks Ben Hallett for pointing this out, um, as a result, Howard got the uh, 1986 Eagle Manned Mission Success Award, which is pretty awesome, a uh, prestigious award to receive. And then, uh, you know, Jenny Howard, along with uh, Perry, who again was the abort, uh, person, uh, we're both given the honor of hanging the mission plaque at flight control. 
And so, yeah, James in the chat is saying, I hope she got a steely-eyed missile man designation for that call. Well, there's a great line. In fact, give me a moment to pull it up because Gene Kranz uh, apparently uh, had called her action, quote, pure guts poker. Hmm. So thank you to Ben wow. Haller for uh, uh, tweeting that along with his answer. And so, yeah, I mean, and, and it was it was it was a really it was a big call. You know, everybody in, you know, these are all experts and professionals, but they had to, they recognized the ramifications of making this call, basically saying, you know, we're going to ignore these sensors and we're going to basically trust you know, this expert and, and it was, it was the right thing to do. And so, yeah, so they, they reached Mika with 110 uh, feet per second under speed, uh, which is the term for when you don't reach quite full Miko, uh, which is nothing an Ohm's burn can, couldn't handle. And so they were able to basically travel, you know, a little further, or they didn't have to go much further at that point. They were now, you know, beyond Tal territory. And so when they dumped the uh, external tank, it, you know, went and tumbled away uh, and landed, you know, you know, mostly burning up, but still kind of its debris falling down uh, in the ocean south of Australia. And so then they got the call that they wouldn't need an Ohms one burn, which is a planned burn if they need to, if they don't get directly to uh, orbit, do what's called a, a direct insertion. They kind of make it a partially the way there and then uh, finish it. Uh, and, and then like, so the kind of, you know, uh, after the fact analysis, um, Interestingly enough, uh, the final abort sim before the launch was a very similar abort-to-orbit situation. And so uh, Brian Perry, again, the flight dynamics officer, he, he he basically, you know, has said, you know, it was very familiar when it was actually happening. And I guess that's why you, you know, you simulate, you simulate, you simulate, you know. And uh, as for the mission itself, you know, I said it was a science mission. It was great. It did its job. They landed safely in Edwards almost eight days later. And I don't know if this, this is just my own personal uh, 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 speculation here, but if you look at this crew of seven, only one of them ever returned to spaceflight. Now, it could be that four of them were scientists, and a lot of scientists would only do, you know, one mission, you know, but I'd like to think that after, you know, the, uh, the abort on the pad and then the abort during powered flight, that, uh, most of them were like, no more spaceflight for me. <laughs> so only, <laughs> only the inimitable Story Musgrave yeah. would go and brave another three shuttle launches after this. And so anyway, that's your event. <laughs> uh, I hope that was interesting. Uh, I thought it was wild, but yeah. That was yeah, uh, the that was really cool. launching aboard of STS-51F. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. That that was quite a trip. Um, <laughs> all right. Next week is the 27th of July through the 2nd of August. Um, David, do you have a clue for us? So next week's event, that will be in 1975. And the clue is, luckily, crisis was not avoided. So Dennis already knows what this might be a reference to. <laughs> well, if, if you, like Dennis, have an idea what this clue might be, uh, Go ahead and shoot us your guess. Send us a tweet with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got a lot of events, actually. Quite For a real. few launches and all kinds of stuff going on. So that's good. Yeah, first one is uh, you got a bit of time before between the day this show comes out and we start getting this huge rush of events. So it is a Long March 2D flying Tianhui 104. So um, it's shortened to TH1. Um, Tianhui is uh, Chinese for sky drawing, which is kind of cool. It is a stereotopographic uh, mapping satellite. Um, it's a military satellite. And uh, this is going to be flying. Let's see, we've got actually a 
a fairly precise launch window um, coming to us from Launch Library. So hopefully this is correct. The launch is going to happen on July 29th. The launch window runs from 0345 UTC to 0421 UTC. That's that's very precise. So mm-hmm. hopefully that'll uh, that'll actually launch uh, when we think it's going to launch. And uh, that's launching out of Jiuquan. And then next up, uh, we have the uh, the CST 100 Starliner, and this is the Orbital Flight Test 2, still uncrewed. <laughs> um, so mm-hmm. that'll be flying on an Atlas V. Uh, this is flying in the uh, the N22 configuration, which means that it has no fairing, two SRBs, and then what was the other thing? Two, two upper stage upper engines. Yep, two yeah. Centaur upper stages. Uh, upper stage engines. There's two. Only one yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two Centaurs. Yeah, that, that'd be cool if you could fly two of those on one uh, first stage. Um, yeah, probably isn't real. capable of that kind Damn. of lift. But yeah, two Centaur engines on uh, that one upper stage. So yeah, uh, this is the second on-crew test flight. This will hopefully demonstrate that they have corrected the problems that they had with the previous test flight. Um, let's hope that all that's fixed yeah. and this thing makes it to orbit. Um, what, I mean, how long ago was that when they had uh, that previous launch? About a year ago. I think it was, it was a year. I, I think, well, yeah, like a year and a half because it was right around, uh, it was in December because I was back in New Jersey visiting my family and it wasn't, it must have been December of 2019 because okay. it was before the pandemic. Okay. 20th okay. of December yeah. night, uh, 2019. Wow. Okay. Hey. Nailed it. There you go. The launch time for that will be at 1853 UTC, two in the afternoon on the East Coast, thereabouts. Um, and it's going to be launching from Cape Canaveral uh, from Space Launch Complex 41. So check that out. That's going to be fun. I'm going to try to watch that. I'm, I, and I mean, I'll just be interested to see. Uh, how this launch mm-hmm. goes. I really want to see it succeed finally. Um, yeah, and I sure. expect that there won't be any of those uh, previous, well, the dead band issue. Let's hope dead that that band, doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise we'll have to get Emery back on. Yeah. Yeah. And then he can explain <laughs> that to me all over again. And then next up, we've got an interesting one. And so this is Friday, July 30th. And we have an Ariane 5 ECA that'll be taking a pair of big old satellites to Geo. And so this uh, includes the Star 1 D2, which is a um, it's a Brazilian uh, satellite that's being built by Space Systems Laurel. Also on board will be uh, the other main payload is the UTELSAT Quantum. And so this is going to be a uh, an experimental satellite that, you know, is able to evidently be reconfigured by software. And so uh, the launch again is on July 30th uh, with a window from 2100 UTC to 2230 UTC. And uh, it will be uh, flying out of Ariane Launch Area 3 in Kourou. All right. After that, we have a Momo. Uh, not, not the meme. Uh, so uh, Momo is a suborbital uh, rocket. Uh, constructed by Interstellar Technologies, uh, which is such a good name. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're trying to do, uh, uh, low cost access to space. So it's, you know, a uh, hundred kilogram small sat launcher. Um, but th- this is a suborbital rocket. Um, so we've got a, like an hour and a half long window, hour and 20 minutes. Um, this is flying on Saturday, July 31st. Uh, and the window runs from 0200 hours UTC to 0320 hours UTC. And, uh, this is flying out of Hokkaido, um, at, uh, 
how do you pronounce the name of the launch site? Is it Taiki Chodenga? And then after that, on July 31st, uh, we have the docking coverage of, well, hopefully the docking coverage of, of the Starliner for Open Flight Test 2. So the coverage for that begins at 12 p.m. Eastern Time, and the actual docking is scheduled for 3.06, so three hours later. So, um, yep, you can uh, just watch all that on your favorite uh, YouTube stream of NASA TV, <laughs> which I guess would be NASA TV. And what good is the docking if you don't get anything from the uh, spacecraft? Or... <laughs> and so, yeah, so finally we've got on August 1st, uh, coverage of the hatch opening of the Starliner will begin. And so the coverage starts at 9.15 a.m. Eastern uh, with the uh, hatch opening scheduled at approximately 9.35 a.m. Eastern. And uh, welcoming remarks are scheduled at 10.35 a.m. Eastern. All right. And those are your upcoming spaceflight events. With that, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and a Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions, including Sty, Delta V, Colin, and James Sutherland, who were here for today's show, as well as helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links or oral podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it, and we will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.